with God. In any event, that was my first joy. The second joy was uh, a, a Jesuit retired community reaching out to me for my musical services, which uh, have just made their comeback uh, as of St. Patrick's Day uh, just last uh, with the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. So I'll be going down to Weston Campion Center. And if you guys and gals know of any opportunities to bring my music ministry uh, to loved ones in the nursing homes, assisted living, or let's bring it to your parish. Uh, by all means, 877-625-3727. Which spells make par. Anytime. And finally... More joy by way of a green light to interview for the second time now, the great John Henry Weston, founder of LifeSightNews.com. And we had an interview over a year ago now. He was talking about his own conversion to the faith, which, which was uh, fascinating. And then he also talked about the difficulties of censorship uh, in this age of the secular New World Order communist cabal. Uh, indeed, even though the pandemic frenzy is not uh, in full swing right now, uh, believe me, free speech is absolutely hanging in the balance. And I'm sure he'll have some words to say about that. So uh, be on the search for that interview, which will air very soon. I wanted to continue on with our quick little mini-series before I get to my book review with Father William Casey, You Shall Stand Firm. We are uh, covering the Synod on Synodality, and we were looking at a particular article and continue to look at Matt Gasper's excellent article called Continuous Aggiornamento. And before I get back to that, I just wanted to uh, go to a book which I think puts in succinct summary many of these concepts of the Synod that we have been exposing, radical inclusivity and accompaniment and uh, having a uh, complete openness to the world of ideas, uh, you know, just a just a a big tent, as they say. Well, this does run contrary to the true spirit of Vatican II. And in a book, uh, and ever so timely on the in the aftermath of Pope Benedict's passing, it's called Benedict the Sixteenth, Defender of the Faith, by Joseph Pierce. And in an excellent chapter called The Spirit and Anti-Spirit of Vatican II, I'd like to read a few excerpts which I think really do put into context the Synod and where it seems to be going. He says, Those at the Council had a vision of the Church as a metaphorical pilgrim, moving through the landscape of time, adapting itself to the changing cultural and political terrain of each age, without ever losing its essential persona, as the mystical body of Christ. This missionary vision of the church as a pilgrim was contrasted with the conservative vision of seeing the church as metaphorically as a rock, as something that is not only unchanging in itself, but also impervious to the changes in the world in which it finds itself. And I just want to pause right there, because this explains, well, Many in our church sometime are most critical of St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI, etc., because sometimes they seem to be duplicitous. They were sitting on the fence, it seems, between the old and the new. Well, they really were just trying to teach what this missionary spirit is all about. It's realistic in the time in which one finds itself. So that's where the older image of the church's rock uh, 
completely unchanging. We've got it, you don't. We don't want to have anything to do with you, the world. Uh, that needed to change. But it that was an arrogant attitude. They called it triumphalism. That indeed, no doubt, needed to change. But the delivery, yes, that had to get updated. Aggiornamento. Well, in updating your language so that people can understand where you're coming from, you know, I've spent a lot of time with 17-year-olds in a high school classroom, and believe me, if you don't use a little bit of their language, no swear words, by the way, uh, you're not going to be able to relate to them. So that's the spirit of Vatican II. We were becoming realistic about having to figure out how do we reach the world but not change ourselves? And any good missionary would recognize that, no, they are unchanging, but they're going to move from place to place under very changing circumstances, and yet they don't change. That's the spirit of Vatican II. In any event, he goes on and says that uh, if the missionary is led by the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, right, and not by the Holy Spirit, it will not convert the world, but will be converted by it. This is what happened to many Catholics who claim to follow the spirit of Vatican II. In contrast to the optimistic realism of the Christian, the optimistic naivete of the progressive is rooted in the incredulous belief that things are always getting better and that the future will always be better than the past. Such a belief flies in the face of all the known facts of human history, except in the narrow and hardly definitive sense of the progress of the physical sciences and the technology they have spawned. As any real student of history knows, the only golden rule is that there was no golden age. The early church labored under centuries of persecution, being baptized by the crucified Christ in the blood of her own martyrs, emerging eventually from the darkness of the dungeon and catacomb into the shadow of heresy. Arianism and Pelagianism threatened to split the church asunder, and false religions from Manichaeanism to Islam have battled for the soul of Christendom. Even the high Middle Ages, which have the most claim, perhaps to be considered a golden age, were beset with problems. There were schisms, anti-popes, an exiled papacy. There were corrupt popes, a corrupt hierarchy, and corrupt priests and religious. None of this detracts from the glories of Christian art and architecture, the majesty of scholasticism, or the ever-living testimony of the saints in every age. But it reminds us that there is no heaven on earth and encouragingly reminds us of the miraculous grace that has preserved the church from the gates of hell, which, in spite of the heritage of sin and error, have not prevailed. True traditionalism sees the church as the tree of life essentially the same in its holiness, its Catholicism, and its apostolate in every age. Ratzinger differentiated between the true spirit of the Council and the emergence of its deadly modernist antithesis. Even during the Council itself, and increasingly in the years that followed, the true spirit of Vatican II was opposed by a self-styled spirit of the Council, quote-unquote, which in reality is a true anti-spirit of the Council. According to this pernicious anti-spirit, everything that is new is always, in every case, better than what it has been or what is. For Ratzinger, there is no pre- or post-conciliar church. There is but one unique church that walks the path toward the Lord, ever deepening and ever better understanding the treasure of faith that he himself has entrusted to her. There are no leaps in this history, no fractures, and there is no break in continuity. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a good example of what I referred to in a previous show as to why I recently bought many catechisms of the priest Father Francis Sparago 
copyright 1921. It was one of the best expanded editions of the Deposit of Faith that you could ever read, and therefore it is as relevant today as it was in 1921. And in 1921, it was the new catechism, but it was in continuity with the catechisms going back to Council of Trent. And before, all the way to the first century, the catechism was called the Didache. So there has to be this unchanging, continuous, unbroken line of apostolic truth called the deposit of faith. It doesn't change, but it gets delivered, according to the jargon in every age, differently, according to the customs of language, etc. Yes, the delivery needed to change in the early 60s, but the truths of the faith did not have to change, nor will they. And there is the key problem with the Synod on Synodality, because she's going over the boundary in trying to literally change Holy Mother Church, and what she believes. Not happening on God's watch. And in his writing, Pro Ecclesia Contra Mundum, Church Against the World, Ratzinger was defiant in his defense of the church. He referred to the spirit of the world, quote-unquote, which the New Testament referenced, was not a positive term. He said it is time to find again the courage of nonconformism, the capacity to oppose many of the trends of the surrounding culture, renouncing a certain euphoric post-conciliar solidarity. Here, Joseph Pierce says, Ratzinger is at his most outspoken, the voice of the church militant, the voice of a church at war with the spirit of the age, fighting with the crusading spirit for the true and unchanging spirit of the gospel. So this is the authentic missionary spirit of Holy Mother Church. She is always of a crusading spirit, fighting against the evils of this world and not embracing any of them, but hopefully being optimistically and realistic about how to engage and embrace the people of God who are not all under the tent. All right, And he there ends up referencing the term body of Christ uh, is the appropriate reference and traditional definition of the church as opposed to the synod's use of the term people of God. This is very much an earthly image going back to the Old Testament times, and notice does not have a distinct referencing of the body of Christ himself, who is transcendent always, not just an earthly God. You can see what they're up to at this synod. This is very clever architecture intellectually towards a new creationism and a new secular religion of man. We will not go there right here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. So in our book review, You Shall Stand Firm, we left off in Chapter 9, Scandals in the Church, Ruin of Souls, And Father Casey was giving us the full green light to us, the laity, to take action when we see things that don't, they just don't look right. They don't sense that they're right. And you have the right, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor of the church, he taught that the lay faithful have the absolute right to expect and to demand sound doctrine and good moral example on the part of the clergy and church leaders. When the faithful do not receive these things, they have the right to press for the reform of the church and the removal of corrupt elements. Canon Law 212 of the Code of Canon Law. 
Don't ever forget that one. That's not one that's been highly publicized, that's for sure. And he continues on, unrelenting, I might add, Father Casey, God bless him for being just a real man and uh, letting loose a little bit in righteous indignation. He says, the scandals, the corruption of certain priests and bishops, the unrelenting media coverage, and the church's public disgrace since the beginning of 2002 are a period of purification. It is a purifying flame that will hopefully bring good out of these scandals. At the same time, what we are witnessing is much more than just a purification. In all honesty, I believe that it is nothing less than God's judgment. His very hand upon the church in this part of the world for its 40 years of infidelity, corruption, dissent, disobedience, affluence, and I might add, arrogance. This is the result of 40 years of lukewarm Catholicism. My brothers and sisters, if we are not careful, God is going to spit us out of his mouth. God willing, the damage done by these scandals will purge the clergy and the seminaries of corruption. But remember, the Protestant Reformation also had that effect. Historians, both Catholic and Protestant alike, are in total agreement on this. The primary cause of the Protestant schism was the corruption of the Catholic clergy. The Protestant movement ultimately forced the Catholic clergy to reform, but the damage was already done. For the last 500 years, we have lived with the terrible effects of Christians pitted against each other, mired in hopeless doctrinal division, and drowning in a sea of confusion. The saints have taught us this as well. In the 16th century, St. Robert Bellarmine said that the Protestant revolt was a punishment from God because of the sins of corruption of the clergy. St. John Eudes stated that the surest sign that God is thoroughly angry with his people is when he allows them to fall into the hands of a corrupt clergy. Priests who commit these kind of offenses are men who have typically long ago rejected traditional Catholicism. Today they are the priests who have bought into the mindset of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. I should add, Pope Pius V once said that all of sin is created by lukewarm Catholics. Well, there's some truth in that, because to add to Father Casey's analysis of the clergy, I would simply say it takes two to tango, and the laity have not been beacons over the last 40 years either. We have been just sitting silent relative, let's say, to abortion itself. I mean, it was an outrage in 1973. Was there a deafening outcry year after year ongoing in the households of Catholics? for the last three to four decades. It might have been maybe for a year or two, I guess, back in the early 70s, but it seems to me that we more or less accepted the culture's acceptance of infanticide. That is what it is, only at an earlier stage. So, you know, then we were just mixing oil with water relative to the church's teachings, especially on human sexuality, relative to contraception. No big deal. They're going to do it anyway, so Catholics just went the way of the secular mindset and bought in to the Trojan horses that were now at your drugstores. We were all part of this. The deadening silence and out-and-out -out rejection by the baby boom generation in particular, of which I am. No, we in fact got the clergy we deserve. Now the case he goes on, he talks about the basic rejection of humanity vitae and by the priests and simply said that when there's a rejection of the virtue of chastity comes the mentality that sex is a mere biological function. Just 
nothing more than fun and games for its own sake. And in 1968, after a protest at the Catholic University of America over Humani Vitae, the encyclical on birth control, the late Patrick Cardinal O'Boyle made the prophetic statement regarding those priests who had rejected the Pope's encyclical, well, if they think that way, then they're going to act that way. And that is exactly what happened. Do you understand why it is now that so many Catholics have not heard a single homily on sexual morality in more than 40 years? Are you surprised? I am a father of mercy. The apostolate of the fathers of mercy is evangelization. Most of us are traveling preachers who specialize in speaking at parish missions, retreats, and traditional Catholic devotions of all kinds across the country. I have spoken to good pastors, I have spoken to devout lay people. I have heard all the horror stories, and I have listened to all the complaints. Here is what they tell me. The number one complaint among our people is that they are sick and tired of lukewarm, watered-down Catholicism. They are sick of superficial, boring, non-committal Catholic preaching and uninspiring homilies. They are sick of being fed false doctrine. They are sick of the lack of sound catechesis. They are sick of the rotten sex education programs that do nothing but incite a young person's natural curiosity and move them to solve it by personal experience. They are sick of the lack of moral exhortation from our pulpits and our classrooms, the lack of tough teaching on sin, vices and virtues, the commandments and the seven sacraments is utterly confusing and demoralizing. People are tired of leaders in the church who are afraid to make moral judgments or to stand up publicly and defend the faith. They are sick of leaders who seem to fear everyone's judgment but God's. Isn't that the truth? It seems as though we are concerned with everyone's opinion but God's. We are afraid of offending anyone but God. Moral authority, in a sense, is like muscle tissue. If it is never used, it is eventually going to atrophy and die. That is exactly what has been happening over the last 40 years. Our people are tired of shepherds who seem to be more concerned with protecting the wolves than the sheep. Our people tell me that they have had it. They have had enough of the modernist mush being shoved down their throats in place of the true faith. They are fed up with the superficial spirituality, the childish, Pollyanna-type spirituality of butterflies, the banners and balloons of feel-good Christianity, a Christianity without the cross. Alleluia, Easter, alleluia. Oh, God bless you, Father William Casey. I'm so tired of saying it myself and having to sometimes go to confession for saying it. Not for saying anything untrue, but always trying to test and tame my charitable spirit in saying it. Because we are at the point, as Father Ripperger has noted, as the leadership gets weirder and weirder, quote unquote, well, that kind of suggests that the level of dysfunction and the lack of understanding of one's own identity is so at work right now that they don't know what they're doing. And in fact, we better pray that they know not what they do, because it kind of wears you out when it's been going on for the 40 years. It is so good. I have such peace to hear a priest put it in exactly the words you just did. God bless Father William Casey of the Fathers of Mercy. We honor you this Easter season for rising up with WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. God bless. Have a great week, everyone. Let your light shine. That is what it's all about here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. But we need to hear your story. You want your voice to be his voice. That is making the faith known to others. Please, my number is 877-625-3727. Tim Kilcoin, TalkCatholic.com. Say Mother Teresa told us, your ministry is your work right where you are. Grab on to this microphone. God bless. <laughs>